without further ado, let's get started with our first talk on Nietzsche and becoming who you are from Sasha Van Dersen Smith. So Thanks, Sasha, Sasha is the course leader of the MA in Existential Coaching at the New School of Psychotherapy and Counseling in London. She has a background in performance, having worked professionally as a presenter and an actor. Sasha has coached many creative artists, including fashion designers, writers, and singers, helping them to find inspiration, confidence, and a strong sense of what they wish to share with the world and how. She's particularly interested in providing a safe space for neurodiverse and LGBTQ plus individuals and has a special interest in working with these groups. You can find out more about Sasha's work on her website, www.sashasmithcoaching.com. So I'm just going to turn my webcam and mic off here and we're just going to get started. So Sasha, good luck. Um, I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you. Gosh, thank you all for being here. Um, Niall told me that we have about 200 people, which is fantastic. And I'm so grateful to you all for being here and seeing you in the chat. And I saw somebody asking um, whether or not I'm related to Emmy van Dersen. And yes, I am. Um, Emmy is my mother. So that's the first question answered. Um, but uh, let me tell you a bit about who I am, uh, aside from, from that fact. So um, I, as Niall said, I, I work as an existential coach, um, which basically means that I've decided to take my passion for overthinking and philosophizing uh, and turn it into something that hopefully helps other people um, to, to think in a way that is helpful to them to make changes in their lives, to uh, come to new insights about themselves um, and, and to become who they are, uh, as it is reflected in the title of this talk. So my interest in Nietzsche really came about when I was studying for my Master's in Existential Coaching. And as part of that, we look at all of the sort of key existential philosophers and thinkers. And Nietzsche always stuck out to me, not just because of his philosophy, but also because of how readable he is. So um, a lot of these philosophers, when you pick up their work, um, it can be quite off-putting or quite uh, challenging, shall we say, to really get to grips with what it is that they're trying to say, even if, even if what they're saying at the heart of it is quite... Um, not necessarily simple, but quite relatable or um, a universal experience. But Nietzsche was specifically interested in, in being readable, in being accessible. In fact, um, it, it's always interesting if you compare his attitude to somebody like Heidegger. Um, Heidegger was is sort of notoriously difficult to read, um, although I wouldn't let that entirely put you off. Um, <laughs> but Nietzsche himself said something along the lines of, my goal is to write in uh, 10 sentences what somebody else takes an entire book to write. And I think that sums up why I sort of had a, an initial affinity for his work. But also when you look at it, I think a lot of his philosophy is, again, very relatable, but also quite practical. So all of the existential philosophers really are in the business of exploring what it is to be human and how we might live well, whatever that means. And Nietzsche particularly is quite sort of um, practical, practical and quite gung-ho about it. So he has a very um, 
expressive way of writing or quite a personal way of writing. Um, and uh, we'll get into that a bit later with some quotes. I've got lots of nice quotes for you um, from Nietzsche because they're all quite understandable. Um, so me on a personal level, I'm coming to you from Luton at the moment where I live. Um, who am I as a human? Well, you can probably hear my dog barking in the background. I apologise for that. She's a little bit difficult to control when you're working from home. Um, and as I've said, I'm particularly interested in working with people who are in marginalised groups of some sort. And actually, I think the philosophy of Nietzsche is particularly relevant to those sorts of um, challenges, um, those, particularly those sort of philosophical challenges, those, those challenges in the way that we think, in the way that we find ourselves in the world. Uh, and I'll touch on that as we go through. So what do I do? Uh, well, as, a, as I said, I'm an existential coach and I like to think of that in terms of this picture is slightly misleading. This picture is obviously you can see some wool that's been quite nicely ordered. Now, I don't really think of the threads of people's lives as being, as being that ordered. Actually, they're quite messy. So usually when people come for coaching, there's a process of untangling all of these threads of their, of their lives or these threads of their thoughts, their hopes, their desires. And it's all quite messy. And as I see it, an existential coach's job is to try to pull at those threads a little bit um, and try to make something out of them, to bring them together, to make something out of them, to help people to better understand what all of those threads are, how they relate to each other, how they think, how their history informs uh, who they are and who they want to become. And as I say, it's not really about making it neat. That's impossible. Humans are, are messy and chaotic, which is another thing that Nietzsche was very, very clear on. Um, and actually, there's a freedom in, in claiming that complexity and claiming that sense of, of, of chaos within that we can't really escape. So the idea is not to make people um, or try to give people the hope that somehow everything's going to be neatly packaged and, um, and, and tied together in a bow. Um, but actually, it's about making something out of that, that uh, chaos and, and finding what it is that is going to drive us forward in a meaningful way. So this obviously involves a lot of self-reflection. And the goal really is to help people to become philosophers in their own lives. So to really look at um, how they think and how that informs what they do and how they might like to tweak that in order to get a different outcome. So what are we gonna cover? We're gonna cover a bit of Nietzsche's life uh, to understand the, the man behind the philosophy and his legacy. So why this philosophy is important in the grand scheme of things in um, the sort of story beyond Nietzsche's life. And then we're going to look through some of his key philosophical concepts. And for each of those, I'm going to give you a key quotation and a bit of an overview. But the focus is going to be on how we use this information, this, um, this thinking to create change or to help us understand ourselves better. And so for each of these, I'm going to give a little bit of a case study, either from a client or for somebody um, in my life, it could be a student that I've worked with, 
about how this philosophy is lived. And then we're going to look at some threads of reflection. So things that you might like to sit with yourself and ask um, in order to help you to become who you are. And then obviously we're going to have a bit of a summary and the questions and answers, which I'm really looking forward to. So who was Nietzsche? Well, that is a, a, a big question. So the, the sort of obvious facts that you might want to know are his birthday. So he's born on the 15th of October, 1844 in Prussia, um, what is now Germany. And he died in 1900, so just at the turn of the century. Uh, his parents, he, his father was a Lutheran pastor uh, and a former teacher. And his mother didn't work, of course, because it's 1844. Um, he had two siblings, a brother and a sister. And Nietzsche grew up, obviously, with a, a, a pastor father in a, quite a... a conservative Christian household and actually he for a long time wanted to go into the clergy himself and really excelled at Christian theology in school. He was quite privileged, he went to a, a, a good school and sort of hobnobbed with some quite important people. Um, but actually in his lifetime his work wasn't particularly recognised and he was seen in many ways as um, somebody who, by traditional standards, certainly at the time, had um, experienced a lot of failure. So ultimately, he died after having a, uh, a quite a severe mental health breakdown, allegedly after he uh, saw a horse being flogged publicly. And for some reason, that really disturbed him. Now, the theory is that he actually died of syphilis and that his part of his mental breakdown was due to this, the effects of the syphilis um, on his on his brain. And there's quite a lot of uh, discussion in in sort of biographical works about Nietzsche around his sexuality, around his relationship with women. Now, one of the things that I always struggle with when I read Nietzsche is that he was very well, he's very much a misogynist really to be honest he uh, he really didn't like women and that th this is kind of reflected in his um in his personal life as well in that he didn't really seem to have a traditionally successful relationship there was a, a woman who he proposed to three times and who rejected him three times um but he also had these very intense friendships with men um in which there was a lot of hero worship that went on, the most famous of which was his relationship with Wagner. Um, and there's a lot of interesting reading around that. If you're sort of interested in the dramas of Nietzsche's life, um, then look at his relationship with Wagner because it's about the most um, <laughs> destructive, bizarre relationship, um, friendship that, that you could imagine um, and, and makes for some really interesting reading. There was a lot of talk um, after he died about the fact that he may have been gay and some people interpret his philosophy through this lens that he was um, a repressed gay uh, and, and that this is a lot of his stuff around breaking from the, the breaking away from the mainstream is about his his internal struggles. 
Now, looking at the evidence, it seems like it may be plausible that he was bisexual. Um, there are certainly, uh, Sigmund Freud alluded to the fact that uh, Nietzsche apparently was known to go to uh, male brothels, for example, and there were rumours that that was how he caught syphilis. But actually, there seems to be a lot of evidence that he went to heterosexual brothels as well. Um, so something to be wary of when you see people discussing Nietzsche and uh, and his sexuality. But actually, it may not be that clear cut. So um, he didn't get wide acceptance of his views in his lifetime until very soon before he died, when he was already kind of um, losing his uh, mental wherewithal. So people started to talk and write about him, I think probably about six months before he died, if I'm right. Um, so a little bit too late for him to really be aware of it, unfortunately. But as we know, that's the case for a lot of a lot of great thinkers, a lot of artists. It's a very common um, common occurrence, sadly. So what is his legacy? Well, a lot of the time when you hear people discussing Nietzsche, there's a discussion of his philosophy potentially being dangerous, and of course any philosophy is dangerous if the wrong people decide to uh, to promote it and to interpret it. So I would say be aware of discussions that, um, that just want to simplify his philosophy in particular terms. So he was linked to Nazism, Nazis kind of co-opted his uh, philosophy. And so there's a lot of talk uh, around it being dangerous in that sense, or accusations that uh, that he was in some way linked to the Nazi party, which isn't helped by the fact that his sister was in fact linked to the Nazi party. But Nietzsche himself was very vocally um, opposed to anti-Semitism. Um, and you'll see as we go through how easily it can be presented as a sort of uh, uh, ethno-nationalism those kinds of perspectives, but actually this doesn't appear at all to be what Nietzsche was trying to express. There have been some other interesting uh, links towards Nietzsche's philosophy and um, some interesting famous murder trials. I have a bit of a special interest in, um, <laughs> in true crime, so I find this particularly fascinating. Uh, but you can look that up as well and how um, people having an interest in Nietzsche has sometimes been actually used as a, a part of the, the, the uh, prosecution argument because it's seen as a dangerous philosophy. So I'm hoping to debunk a bit of that today um, and to have a discussion around how actually it's an empowering freeing philosophy that, that doesn't inherently have these links, they're just links that have been created by others. So, one of the questions that people often ask about him is, was he a nihilist? And it's a kind of a yes and no answer. So, nihilism being this uh, definition here, the rejection of all religious and moral principles in the belief that life is meaningless. Well, yes, 
he believed that, but actually he was quite uh, worried about nihilism. He was quite worried about the fact that culture at that time was headed in that direction, that um, religion was taking less of a... Uh, less of a, a driving seat and that science um, science was sort of changing the way that people were thinking. So there was this sort of gap between morality and science. And he was very worried about people sort of falling into that gap um, and that nihilism would take over, that people would believe that life was meaningless and that this would actually cause a crisis. Uh, and so it's important to make a distinction between nihilism and existential nihilism, existential nihilism being more the belief that life has no intrinsic meaning or value and that therefore it's up to us to create our own. So actually, it's quite an empowering um, belief about our construction of our own um, meaning, our own value, our own purpose in life. Uh, so simply saying that he's a nihilist is a, a little bit of an oversimplification. Um, so here is a, a quote from him uh, around nihilism. So I praise you, I do not reproach nihilism's arrival. I believe it is one of the greatest crises, a moment of the deepest self-reflection of humanity. Whether man recovers from it, whether he becomes master of this crisis is a question of his strength. It is possible. So he was very interested in the question of, of, of what we do with um, our thought processes in order to sort of save ourselves, to, to save our, uh, our culture. So a few caveats before we start looking at his actual philosophy. Um, I think actually the most important of these is remembering that he would encourage us to question him. So his entire philosophy really is about questioning the mainstream, about questioning the uh, knowledge or the wisdom that we inherit. And so the idea that anyone would read his work and just completely go along with it is so anti what he believed that I think it's important when we look at it to question and to look at it with a critical eye and to to make what we want of it really, or um, what is meaningful to us, uh, to take and leave the bits that we think are relevant. Obviously consider the time, so his misogyny, although I hate to blame that on, on time solely, um, because obviously it's more complex than that, that is a big part of it. We have to think about the time in which he was writing, and of course his own subjective position as well. I have a suspicion that Nietzsche probably was autistic, um, in part because of the some of the chaotic relationships in in his in his life and the, the sort of interesting way in which he conducted those relationships, but also other things like the fact that he had a, a significant speech delay, that then became um, incredibly adept at, at reading and writing, and so I think there is a slightly neurodiverse lens to his philosophy as well, which is important to keep in mind in terms of the context. So here are the um, key themes that we're going to be looking at today, the key philosophies that we're going to be looking at today. 
So nonconformity and his notion of the herd, values and morality, the Superman and the will to power, which are probably the most uh, commonly referenced parts of his philosophy, Amor Fati, the love of one's fate and the eternal recurrence, which is a famous uh, thought experiment that he did, which I'm going to ask you to do on yourselves. The notions of subjectivity and individualism, his uh, master slave and creditor debtor morality, the notion of resentment, and finally, so getting to the crux of the matter, how to find yourself and, and his notion of free spirits. Now, this is, of course, a bit of a whistle-stop tour. So those of you who are interested or drawn towards this, do go away. There's plenty to read. He wrote an awful lot. Um, and as I say, it's quite approachable for philosophy, so definitely a good place to get stuck in if you're interested in philosophy but not sure where to start as well. So what did he say about conformity? Well, here's a quote. The surest way to corrupt a youth is to instruct him to hold in higher esteem those who think alike than those who think differently. So this was a comment really on how we tend to gravitate towards people or who are safe in terms of challenging our worldview. So we will stick to people who, uh, and we're taught to stick and respect people who think in the same way as us and to avoid those who think differently. And we see this going on all the time. Um, and obviously that's quite a safe position to be in, but it creates a bubble and it creates a, a lack of um, dynamic energy, a lack of creativity, a tendency to um, sit in a, in a bit of an echo chamber and to, to not question. And actually, if we take the the issue of becoming oneself, then that requires a degree of questioning and a degree of challenge and a degree of discomfort. And so in order to do that, it's really important that we don't hold in higher esteem those who think alike, but that actually we look beyond that and we think about people who think differently and what we can, what we can learn from that and how we can broaden our horizons, how we can broaden our worldviews. Of course, going about that requires a lot of strength because it's an uncomfortable position to be in, but it's also an incredibly freeing position to be in. So I worked with a client named Didi. I've changed names, obviously, for confidentiality reasons, who had been given a lot of... Um, a lot of parental, not just parental, but familial input about essentially what was epigenetics. So um, a lot of science used to uh, back up a particular worldview, which was essentially that um, white people are intellectually superior. Of course, the science around this is completely and utterly flawed. Um, but also that as a woman, she was also inferior in terms of particularly strength. So a lot of biological, false biological assumptions around um, essentially predetermined fate. So how our genetics determine our uh, capacity and our limitations. 
And she carried with her a lot of a lot of concern about this and a lot of worry, particularly on an intellectual level, because one of her parents she perceived to be very highly intelligent and was quite academically accomplished. And the other parent, she didn't really intellectually respect at all. And so her concern always was about whose genes she had inherited because she'd been given all of this, um, all of this information about how important and how determining genes are in terms of self-creation and capacity. And so a lot of the work that we had to do together was about shaking, shaking off this belief and seeking out people who had different beliefs or beliefs around our self-determination, around um, the notion of fate, around our capacity for things, so that she could begin to see herself not in terms of genetics and determinism, but as a whole person who is subjective, who is determined by so many other things, not not least her own spirit, her own desire, her own um, passion. So some things to reflect on. Who were you told to hold in high regard and how has their thinking influenced you? So maybe it was a parent or a guardian. What kind of, of wisdom did they pass on to, on to you and who did they direct you to, to look towards um, as a sort of a great thinker or someone of influence, someone to be listened to? And how has that affected your your path so far and your sense of yourself so far and can you think of who might contrast that opinion so where might you go to get another perspective and that's not to say that one perspective is right and one is wrong but it's about opening the horizon it's about not being determined by the sort of wisdom that you inherit. This is what Nietzsche was very, very keen on. That sort of more expansive thinking, that more creative thinking, that um, willingness to look at all different sources, all different perspectives in order to create one sense of meaning, one sense of value, rather than to simply inherit it. And what would it be like to sit with that discomfort and to enter a world where we, where we suppose truth rather than try to have our truth confirmed all the time by external sources, by people who, who we deem to be worthy and to avoid others who, who we've been told not to deem worthy or, or who threaten our worldview in some way. So again, it's not about assuming that because they have a contrasting worldview that somehow they're more right. It's about being open to it and actually exploring it. And so I think that's a challenge for all of us in there from nature. So his notion of the herd was very much about this. So Nietzsche spoke a lot about how we we go along with the herd that everything in our society is organized into herds into tribes 
and that the individual always has to struggle from being overwhelmed by the herd. So he says, if you try it, to not be overwhelmed by the herd, that is, you'll be lonely often and sometimes frightened, but no price is too high to pay for the privilege of owning yourself. And this is absolutely key to Nietzsche's, uh, Nietzsche's thought, the privilege of owning yourself. Um, and to a degree, that's the crux of, of existential work with people. So we tend to avoid this at all costs. We tend to deny our freedom and deny our responsibility to choose, our freedom to choose. So existentialists talk a lot about choice um, and how we can become more conscious of the choices that we're making at any one time, but also the inevitability that we, that we will fall into what's called bad faith at times, meaning that we will deny our freedom. Because if we were aware of our freedom to choose all of the time and aware of the, the vast amount of choices available, it would become completely overwhelming. So <coughs> clients often will avoid this at all costs. And it means, of course, that we don't have a lot of understanding about what's at work behind the scenes with us as well, about what we have inherited from, from that herd mentality, what we feel under pressure to do because we are going along with the herd, because, again, that's much more comfortable. And, of course, even when people on the surface appear to be rebelling, they often still fall into a herd. So you'll get herds of rebels, herds of protesters or, um, you know, anarchy, anarchists or the sort of hippie movement or all of those things. They, we still gravitate towards this, this herd mentality, this, this safety in numbers, this, um, this reason not to claim our own freedom, our own individual perspective, which is a very uncomfortable place to be and one where we have to take a lot more responsibility for ourselves. So it's questionable whether or not it's possible even to, to shun herds, to, to find ourselves completely outside of herds. And, and that's a lot of what Nietzsche writes about in Thus Spake Zarathustra which is a great book, which I recommend that you all pick up if this is interesting to you. And so what's an example of how this plays out? So um, I'm going to speak about a client who um, really ended up questioning their religion. So their religion, it turned out, was in direct conflict with who they were because this was a client who was a lesbian but whose God completely condemned homosexuality. And so this is not just about religion as a, as a herd thing, but it's the kind of God that within, within the herd that you, that you grow up in or you find yourself, the kind of flavor of that God that is given. So for some people, the, the, God, the notion of a God might be 
a sort of a kind, forgiving God. For others, it might be a vengeful, um, punishing God. And for this client, unfortunately, that God was a vengeful God who would not allow same-sex relationships. And so that client was in direct conflict with that God for her entire life, but also in conflict with everyone who represented and enforced that narrative. So the herd around um, around this, this notion of this vengeful God. And so obviously in terms of where she found herself in that position, it's very difficult to, to just shun the herd or break away from the herd, partly because we, we don't just sort of incidentally find ourselves in herds, but they mean so much in terms of our safety, in terms of our sense of belonging, that simply breaking away from them is incredibly difficult and potentially destructive to do. Um, and also that, you know, she wanted to keep her family and her life. And so juggling this tension and having to re-examine her own beliefs and her own perspective of, of who her sense of God was and to find herself in that was extremely challenging and, and was opposed at every step of the way because of the herd that, that she was born into. So the question is then, how do we manage the herd that we've been given and how do we create herds? What herds do we choose to be a part of rather than that are just given? And what is the impact of those? How much room within those are there for individuality? And, and are we questioning them or are we simply going along with them for convenience? So I'd like to encourage you to think about what herds or tribes you're a part of in your life. So what are the groups, the kind of cultural or societal groups that you find yourself in? It might be, for example, that you're a football fan and there's a uh, you find yourself in the herd of the, the supporters of that team that, that, um, that you root for. It could be much bigger than that. So in a religious uh, capacity, as, as we were discussing before, it could be all sorts of things, even small herds like the herd of your family and the kind of collective wisdom that you inherit from that or the expectations that you inherit from that and how willing are you to diverge from those tribes and in what ways so at what point are you are you pushed to a a moment where suddenly it becomes important to you to break free in some way from that herd what is it that inspires that because that thing, that thing that inspires you to break away from the herd or makes you feel as if you have to break away from the herd is obviously so important that you're willing to sacrifice your own sense of security or safety, that that's incredibly worth listening to and examining. And what is the price that you would pay for the privilege of owning yourself? As Nietzsche said, how much are you willing to give up in terms of your security, your sense of belonging? in order to really embrace your beliefs, your worldviews, your internal wisdom that may well differ from the herds that you're a part of. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. So, all existentialists like to talk about values. 
uh, because quite simply, they're very important in terms of um, the human experience. I will, I will caveat slightly as well that I'm talking about human experience. <coughs> I get very fed up <laughs> with thinkers or uh, writers who dismiss non-human animal experience. And so my intention is not to um, really make a strong distinction between us and other animals, but more that it, it's the only experience that we can talk about from any point of knowledge. So it's not to dismiss or say that this is different to any other creature's experience of the world, but more that we simply can't know that. So that's just a side note. So <coughs> I love this quote. He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. So in other words, if you know what the value is that you're upholding, you know what the why is, then you can survive an awful lot by holding on to that value, that sense of why. If we don't have that underpinning what we do, it can be very difficult to pull through or to really make change or to really feel like we're owning who we are. So really figuring out your values is extremely important to that work. And yet we often don't think about that. If we look at Things like to-do lists, for example, I like this because it's a very sort of coachy thing. It's very focused on practical work, um, future-focused, goal-setting, all that, that kind of um, nice, satisfying stuff. We look at to-do lists, they're very focused on doing, 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 rather than being. And if we want to really look at values, then we have to look at being rather than doing. And so a lot of the work that I'll do with people is about changing that focus, shifting from a doing focus to a being focus. So what does that look like? That could be thinking about um, instead of what we have to do today, how do we want to feel at the end of the day? And then work backwards and think, what do we need to do to make that happen? So you still get the doing, but it comes from the being. So you're, you're tipping on, it, on, it, on its head a bit. What's the value that's important for me to live today? And what do I need to do in order to live that value rather than just coming up with a list of chores that need to be done? And it's the same with tackling anything that, um, that is on the horizon or that, um, that we're sort of challenged by. So, for example, with public speaking, people will get quite hung up on the fact that um, – on the task at hand rather than necessarily the the values that are underpinning it so and of course if we focus on that task at hand it's a task at hand we don't have the why and so the doing the bearing becomes much more difficult but if we think and we question what is it that i want to come away from this experience feeling or having achieved what's the value that i want to uphold then it might be that uh, something like I I want to share knowledge or I want to um, form a bond with my audience. I want to connect. It's a value of, uh, of, of being with others, of connecting. It could be all sorts of things, but if, if you can tune into that, into the value that you want to uphold in that situation, 
then the doing becomes an outcome of that value rather than just the thing in itself. So here's a little case study of um, a bar owner. Well, not a bar owner, a wannabe bar owner. So this was a person who I spoke to who became a psychotherapist ultimately, but their dream in the beginning of their life was to become a bar owner. <clears throat> and they couldn't quite figure out why they had come from wanting to be a bar owner to wanting to be a psychotherapist and, and what that journey was about. And they kind of weren't making any connection between the two. And actually, we kind of sat and tried to distill it. What was the, was there a common value between the two? And of course there was. That desire to be the bar owner wasn't about owning a business or particularly anything really to do with, um, with bar work or um, hospitality in any particular way. It was about value, the value of community service. It was about creating a space. They had wanted to create a space where people could come, they could chat, they could share, and they could feel a sense of being heard. And so actually, this person had managed to meet those values, meet those needs through becoming a psychotherapist as well. It was the same things at play, creating a space for people where they were comfortable, where they could share, where they could be listened to. And so it's interesting how our values influence, influence us behind the scenes. They're a sort of compass that we're not aware of a lot of the time. And so it's interesting to try to boil this down when we're, when we're dealing with any aspect of our own lives to think about what are the values that are underpinning it, what really is motivating us, and to go, keep going deeper and deeper and deeper to try to distill exactly what it is to really truly understand what that drive is and therefore how we might turn that into how we might use how we might fulfill that in various different ways so that we're not stuck on this is the one option I have but actually it's more a quest to live that value and you can do that in so many different ways normally and of course this is a lot what children do they ask why a lot, and we kind of stop doing that. And I think there's a sense of we ask why, we ask why, we ask why, and then we, we absorb what we're told and we embrace the, the why that we're given rather than the why that is inside, that's, that's that value that we're seeking internally. So how do we work with this? Well, you think about a drive that you recall having in the past. So you don't necessarily have to know what the value was that was underpinning it, but something that you really wanted to do in, in, in the past that maybe you still want to do, maybe you don't want to do it anymore. Maybe it's a dream that's kind of um, fallen out of your consciousness or somehow isn't so important anymore. And boil it down, boil it down to a value. What was the value that you were chasing when you really wanted that thing? What was it really about? Boil it down, boil it down, boil it down. And then question, is that value still active in your life? 
Have you met that in some other way? And these could be destructive values as well as productive ones. Sometimes it's a value of um, of wanting to just rebel for rebellion's sake, or, or uh, wanting to be different, wanting to um, exercise some sort of power because we feel like we're not being heard or we don't have the space. And actually these sort of destructive senses of values are equally existentially equally as important to the productive ones. The point is that we need to understand what is driving us so that it doesn't just drive us behind the scenes, that it's something that we can actually pick up and work with. And so this is a really useful tool, the emotional compass, which Emmy van Dersen created, um, which is a way to look at our emotions as indicators for the values that we're chasing or that we feel we're losing. And you'll say, you'll see in the, in the, it's sort of done as a clock face. So from 12 to three, you've got uh, emotions such as pride, jealousy, worry, vigilance. Those are about fearing that we may lose the value that we're seeking, that somehow the value that we're trying to uphold is, is under threat. That's when we become jealous, when we become vigilant, we're on lookout. We are concerned about losing something that is important to us, about losing that value. Then from three to six, there are emotions that are about that, that loss actually having happened. So we fall into despair, fear, confusion, cowardice. This is all about the loss of a value that we're upholding. And then from six to nine, you have that sense of hope, that sense of potential to acquire or live that value. So um, envy, curiosity, aspiration, those sorts of emotions. And then from nine to 12, it's about the feelings that come when we start to acquire that value again. So love, joy, pride, um, sorry, not pride, uh, thrill, those kinds of things. And so the idea of this is really just as a tool of exploration. So it's not a formula. It's not that we work our way neatly around these emotions, around this compass face, this clock face. Everybody's different and the journey will be different, but it's a useful tool in terms of actually identifying our emotional patterns and what those might be about. So sitting with this and thinking, where do I find myself commonly? Where are the bits of the compass that I tend to miss out? What is the kind of journey that I tend to take around here? And what's going on there? What's going on when that happens? What am I, am I finding myself in, um, in the sort of 12 to three section where I am very vigilant about losing something? And, and if so, what is it that I'm concerned about losing? What is it that sets that off? It can be a really, really useful tool in terms of identifying what our emotions are telling us about what is important to us and trying to identify what it is actually that is important to us in that moment, rather than just going along with the sort of collective uh, wisdom, really distilling it, really thinking about what is important to us in that moment. So we're going to continue now with 
the next key philosophical concept, which is that of morality. And this is something that Nietzsche really, really loved to um, dissect and explore. Somebody's saying that they can't hear, but I don't think that's on my end um, because my microphone is turned on and I can see the sound going up and down. So I'm hoping that that's something that can be resolved on that person's end. Cool. A lot of people saying that they can hear fine. Brilliant. Thank you for confirming. <laughs> that's a relief. Um, so Nietzsche spoke a lot about morality um, and, in fact, wrote a book called Beyond Good and Evil, which was really all about dissecting our sense of morality. Uh, and so here's a very sort of no-nonsense classic Nietzschean-style quote about it. So he says, morality makes stupid. Custom represents the experiences of men and er of earlier times as to what they supposed useful and harmful. But the sense for custom, morality, applies not to those experiences as such, but to the age, the sanctity, the indiscussibility of the custom. And so this feeling is a hindrance to the acquisition of new experiences and the correction of customs. That is to say, and this is it, morality is a hindrance to the development of new and better customs. It makes stupid. So his notion here that um, it's history that impacts a lot of our ideas and values, we inherit them. Um, and that's based on what was important at the time or what was um, common sense at the time. But we just we inherit that through the generations rather than questioning it and playing with it. And of course, things do evolve naturally as time goes on. But that's a very slow process and one that we don't tend to take much time actually um, considering, but one that, that we tend to rely on happening, happening naturally. And also one that we don't tend to, a journey that we don't tend to do individually, but more collectively over time. And so Nietzsche was really interested in going far beyond our sense of, of morality. And this is obviously a threat in many ways, because um, this is an easy part for that can be co-opted to support dangerous ideas. So um, this is often misinterpreted to say that Nietzsche didn't believe in any kind of moral position and that therefore it's free for all. But that isn't really what he was saying. He was saying that we tend to make this distinction between morality and ethics, morality being our sort of individual um, position or individual moral position that comes from within and that ethics are come from um, the sort of herd, the, the, the dominant philosophy where we find ourselves. But actually what he was saying is that that's kind of a, a myth, really, and that although we might feel that our morality comes solely from within, it is actually inherited and absorbed. And so it, it's clumsy thinking to, to, um, to assume that our morality simply comes from us and our own individual ideas. So he was very keen on trying to go beyond this, beyond our inherited morality, and to try to encourage people to become, to figure out their own position. And he spoke a little bit about different types of morality, which we'll come to later, which are well, other things that have been sort of deemed problematic by people who don't really 
know Nietzsche's work that well. So one way that I like to look at this is my own struggle with proverbs and sayings, which is that, um, so there's a caveat to this, which is that um, I am also an autistic individual. Um, and so a lot of the time I struggle with proverbs generally because I struggle with uh, literal thinking or interpreting um, other people's conceptual ideas without being too literal about them. And so there are a lot of times in my life, and I wonder if others relate to this as well, I've certainly spoken to many who do, where I have sort of grappled with some thought for a long time and then come to this conclusion, this sort of brilliant, in my mind at the time, philosophical conclusion about what this means, some truth that I've sort of boiled down or some amazing insight about human existence that I've boiled down. And then when I express it to myself in simple terms, I realise that it's a standard proverb or saying <laughs> that we actually use. So it's not an original idea at all. In fact, it's something that um, that is told to us over and over again. But But the difference is that I had not lived it. I had not really understood it. And this is the problem. When we inherit this wisdom, it isn't really wisdom because we don't really it's not embodied. We don't connect to it. It's just told to us. And so this is part of the struggle that I have with a lot of um, self-help when it's based around things like affirmation, which there, there is a lot of science to show that, um, that affirmations can be very useful, don't get me wrong. But they're not the be and all, be all and end all, because unless we really take them in, unless we really understand them in a heartfelt way, then it's kind of like those proverbs that we're just told that we repeat without necessarily feeling or understanding exactly what they mean, exactly what that lived experience is. And we spoke about this um, with a, a group of students recently, actually, in the, talking about the embodiment of that understanding that. Um, that lived wisdom and how uh, in, in the group there was a lot of discussion of head versus heart and that you can understand something intellectually, you can feel it here, but unless it shifts down there, you don't really understand it. Um, and so I'd kind of like to encourage everybody to think about where, they, where you feel your truth. Where does something settle in in an embodied way when you, when you really sort of recognise it, when you really feel that you're living it, that you understand it, that it sort of settles into your being rather than just being something that you intellectually understand. Um, and on that note, what kind of morality have you inherited? And do you question that? So what are the, the sort of moral positions that you have been um, groomed towards? And do you ever question those? Not necessarily with a view to let's just throw everything away and, and question absolutely everything. And just because we've been given it, it means it's wrong. Not at all. It's about a sifting through and a, and a, a, a picking out what do I feel? What do I know? What do I hold true in a sort of personal embodied way? and what has simply been handed down. And unless we question, 
we can't really come to that because we are burdened with so many moral and ethical positions. And so questioning whether these are based on our perceived wisdom or our lived wisdom is a really important process. But also how can we cultivate a lived wisdom? So it's all very well and good saying that um, if it's not, if it doesn't come from a lived wisdom, then we just throw it out. But actually, surely what we need to be doing is cultivating a life in which in which we give ourselves time and space and opportunity to live wisdom, to actually filter things through and to feel them out. And this is, I think, some of the most important work that we have to do. And one of the reasons why I love sitting and working with people one-on-one uh, -on -one because it gives us a space to do that. It gives us a space to explore, to question, to try things on. Um, never with the feeling that we have to, once we try them on, keep them on forever. Because we really don't. <coughs> so the next key concept is the will to power. Um, and this is one of those ones which is extremely complicated because actually Nietzsche never systematically defined exactly what he meant by the will to power. So this is probably one of the more foggy ideas, but um, so it's open to interpretation and it's open to debate, which I think actually is quite exciting. So see what you think and try it on and, um, and see where you get to with it. So he says, the world itself is the will to power and nothing else. And you yourself are the will to power and nothing else. Now, he essentially believed that this notion of the will to power is the main driving force in humans. But, and this kind of came out of a biological approach. So he read a, um, a paper about a year before he started writing about the will to power, which was about um, how our cells have to compete with each other for resources. So on a, a sort of microbiological level, there is this will to survive, this will to attain power over other organisms, other, other parts of organisms in order to survive. But there's a, a bit of the trouble comes with misappropriation of this idea because of the understanding of what we mean by the word power. And so it's important to take uh, language into consideration here. So, of course, Nietzsche wrote in his native German language. And there's a big distinction between two of the, the different words for power in German. So you have Kraft, which is force or strength, and you have Macht, which is more about power or might. Um, and so the notion of Macht can be much more easy, easily misappropriated because if we talk about them of, of might, um, you can read in all sorts to that, that actually this is about humans um, sort of mightily asserting themselves over each other in a kind of a, a warlike way. And of course, this is where a lot of the Nazi propaganda around Nietzsche uh, comes in. Uh, and as I said, that was something that he was quite strongly against. So it's anybody who likes to make that connection should be very wary of it, but also very aware of the fact that um, there are many other movements that have been linked to people's interpretation of Nietzsche's work that 
that are perhaps more positive. So um, there are some really important political figures who were greatly inspired by by Nietzsche's work, who who then ended up doing some some great things in terms of emancipation. So there's a lot of stuff in uh, black power movements where people were specifically inspired by Nietzsche's work. So anybody who tries to come at it from this from this sort of one sided view of oh well you know Nietzsche's work has informed a lot of Nazi uh, philosophy, there's another side to that. And actually, this is all about interpretation anyway rather than what he was actually writing about. So he was writing in a much less specific way. So really, this notion of the will to power is about self-overcoming. It's about the conscious channeling of Kraft rather than Macht. So Kraft being the, the force or strength, that inner force or strength, channeling that consciously for creative purposes. Um, and so obviously this is very important in terms of becoming oneself because it's about channeling your inner force, your life force, your um, your inner sense of strength towards something that is self-actualizing, towards a, a creative project of, of some sort. And that doesn't need to be obviously traditional creativity. That can be creative just in a more general term about what putting something new into the world, putting yourself into the world. And I think this is the big, a big part of the work that coaches need to do, that good coaches need to do, is really about helping people to understand what their individual power is, because it's all different for all of us. We all have something different to offer the world. And the problem is when we become fallen in with herds, when we become fallen in with morality that we inherit or a sense of... Um, of what our, what our power should be, what our force should be. We lose touch of what our actual force is, what it is that we have to contribute that is unique. And so this sort of shedding, this constant shedding of the things that we have acquired is so important to, to finding that power somewhere at the bottom of there that's been kind of overshadowed by other people's ideas. So he wrote about the pleasure of feeling power and the hunger to overpower. Um, and again, as I say, this was rooted in biology. So on a cellular level, um, and also this, obviously the concept of survival of the fittest, which was a big part of where the science was going at the time that, uh, that Nietzsche was writing. So you've got Darwinism coming in strongly. Um, and he spoke a lot about the desire for cruelty. Um, and, and linking that in with the, the, the pleasure of feeling power, how people will begin to be so drawn to the pleasure of feeling power that they will act in, in cruel ways. But I wonder if that interpretation or that sort of direction of this discussion is rooted very strongly in Nietzsche's sense of his own masculinity, because as we know, he was very um, skeptical or dismissive of, of more feminine energy and in, in that he struggled a lot with women, with relationships with women and, and wrote some very misogynist work. But, but also obviously his sense of himself as a man at that time where masculinity was much harder to break free from. Um, 
And so I think this interpretation of power is quite a sort of a traditionally masculine interpretation of power and that actually you see a lot of the time with people who are, and to clarify, I'm, I'm talking about femininity and masculinity rather than maleness and femaleness, which is a, a big distinction. Um, a more feminine expression of power can be can be more about nurturing rather than imposing oneself. Now, that doesn't mean that it's any less problematic. It is because it's still a, an expression of power. If we are nurturing someone, and we'll talk a little bit about this later, there is still a sense of power in that. There is still a dynamic in that. So it's not to say that that's a sort of nice way of... Um, of conducting oneself, but I think it's a diff different interpretations of power and uh, different interpretations of the desire that might arise from that that um, that need to feel in power. Um, and so we have to ask ourselves always, what is the payoff to our behaviour? So even the things that we are uncomfortable about, the habits that we want to change. There is some payoff there. And if we think about this in terms of the will to power, that can be quite useful because you can think, what is it about this thing that I do that makes me in some way feel that I have power? However, that's expressed or whatever desire is behind that, whether it's a desire for cruelty, whether it's a desire for um, giving in some way. What is the motivation behind this behaviour? What is the, the will to power? Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about a client who I had who was um, autistic and had an IQ of about 80. And he had a really fantastic father, actually, who really encouraged him um, on a sort of not intellectual level, but a, a career level, which was not at all a given, um, considering his uh, his intellectual disability and his his developmental disorder. But Bobby inherited this um, notion of power being around business acumen, around being successful in a very specific way and indeed his father was a, a fantastic example of that he was somebody who had fingers in lots of different pies um, who was very very successful on that business level and, and on a sort of charitable level as well and so Bobby inherited this idea of this um, this notion of power being about business acumen and about um, sort of setting things up and being successful and this was really really caused a lot of tension for him because although there were ways in which he could um, seek that kind of power, it actually was a notion of power that left him quite powerless as somebody who, who had a, a, you know, a much lower than average IQ, who wasn't considered to be particularly hireable because of, um, because of all his challenges, all of his um, disability. Um, and so this left him in a really, really difficult place. And this is the thing, once we embed something, it's very hard to shake off or even realise that that's what's going on. So I would sit with Bobby and Bobby would sort of talk about how um, he was really pleased to have 
um, gotten a promotion to be able to work on the checkout at the shop that he was working part-time in um, because that to him was a sort of expression of of power. It was his understanding of his power. But actually, we all have so much more potential for power than the ones that we're told that we have. And so really questioning what we've been told is powerful is a very powerful thing to do. <laughs> um, to, to really dissect that and really think about what kind of power is important to us, how we can express that. And, it, and again, I, I don't think it's about shunning the notion of power being important, but it's um, because I, I think that's an impossibility with human beings. Um, but it's about really questioning and dissecting and interpreting and then self-actualizing in a way that feels rooted in, in, um, in ourselves rather than outside of ourselves. So some things to reflect on. Um, in what way do you experience your will to power? Is the focus on the will or the power? I'll talk about that in a second. Um, and are you able to live a truly creative life? So again, creativity being not just um, artistic creativity, but a creativity that is an expression of our own, our own special power, our own special internal power, creative power. So Nietzsche spoke a lot about creativity. He was a, a bit of a musician himself and was a great lover of the arts um, and wrote about them a lot. In fact, there's a quote of him saying something along the lines of um, a day that a day in which you don't dance is a wasted day. And he spoke about conflicting creative energies. So he spoke about the Apollonian and the, and the Dionysian. So the Apollonian being the sort of cool, rational intellect and the Dionysian being the passional, uh, passional, passionate, emotional um, aspects of creative force. And he was very concerned at, um, at the fact that uh, culture at the time was kind of quite Apollonian. He was worried that, uh, that society was starting to neglect this kind of passionate emotional Dionysian energy and that actually creative living means that we have to have a bit of both um, and and that's in art but more broadly than art as well and that he also believed that some people tend to get drawn in by one or the other so do you get more drawn in by your um, your cool rational intellect or do you get more drawn in by your passion and your emotion and how might you not necessarily balance that, but how might you give yourself a little bit of the other side in order to strengthen your creative energy? Um, and I think that's a challenge that we all have, but also a theme that comes up in a, in a lot of um, philosophical thought or a lot of... Um, spiritual thought as well. So obviously then the notion of the yin yang, um, all of these things around duality and pluralism, they're all, it's obviously a sort of a, a theme in humanity um, that we instinctively feel and that we translate in slightly different ways. So I think the challenge of that is how do you translate that to yourself personally? What are your 
even going beyond this Apollonian and Dionysian uh, interpretation, but how do you feel that? How do you feel? What, um, what tensions and energies do you feel within yourself and how do those work together? And what do you need a bit more of sometimes and, and how do you go about that? So what is your own duality? This is probably his most famous concept, um, the Superman or the Ubermensch. Um, and yes, this is where the character of Superman actually originated from. So Nietzsche didn't create the uh, comic character Superman, but the person who did create Superman did read Nietzsche and it did come out of, of Nietzsche's philosophy. So there's a little interesting factoid. Um, so Nietzsche's fear was that we would get caught between morality and nihilism and that there was a sort of a gap in between those two different perspectives that we would fall into. And his answer was that we had to become a superior man, superior person, so that we could kind of rise out of that gap and create something in that gap, in that nothingness. Um, and that something being obviously something that is much more individual. Um, he believed that the this notion of the superior man, and I'm and I'm cautious around this a because um, because obviously his language is very gendered, um, but more so because clearly the concept of the superior man is is going to be problematic, and this is where again a lot of his philosophy gets um, misappropriated to towards very, very dangerous ideas about superiority and hierarchy. But that wasn't really what Nietzsche was getting at at all. It wasn't this notion that, it, it wasn't a sort of a hierarchical thing particularly. It was about mastering oneself rather than mastering other people. And so um, this was about striking off conventional Christian herd, herd morality um, to create your own values. Um, which are completely rooted in, in what it is to be human on this earth rather than something that is inherited or, um, or something that is promised by a, a sort of belief system. So the Ubermensch, the Superman, is the person who's able to break from that illusion and to really create themselves. And society's definition of morality is, is biased and socially constructed. So he was very much about breaking down that social construction um, and really shaking that up. So it doesn't mean that the Superman is amoral or that they have no moral co code. In fact, quite the opposite. It's more that their morality isn't dictated by institutions or by the herd or by anything other than the Superman's own morality. So this is about reclaiming the concept of morality, which was always supposed to be coming from within, but actually doesn't come within most of the time. Now, Nietzsche didn't think this was an easy thing to do at all. In fact, he um, was kind of concerned that such a person couldn't exist, as we sort of saw in the first quote that I put up, that he was aware that this was a huge challenge and, and that we may not be able to meet it, but, but that it was possible. In theory, it was possible. So this um, reminds me a lot of a client, um, an autism client who I worked with, 
um, who had a sort of a a weird, well, not a weird. I I think this is a common thing with neurodiverse individuals that you start from a position of questioning, of looking at the status quo, the inherited wisdom, the um, institutions around us, and the, and the social constructions um, with a skeptical eye, because as a neurodiverse person, your brain kind of doesn't fit into that, that notion of reality, that default. And so from the beginning, there is a tension because that the socially constructed nature of things is more obvious. Um, things are taken less as a given because there's such a mismatch by default from the neurodiverse brain to the sort of um, collective wisdom, the collective societal wisdom. And so autistic clients tend to find that they have to shake this off every day in every choice. It's very, um, it's something that they're very aware of. And there's a, a huge tension between how much do I express my individuality and how much do I try to fit in to mask to um, belong. And this is a tension that we all have to deal with. But in autistic clients, it can be much more acute um, because it's such a, a huge issue in day-to-day -day life. It's much more reflected on normally. So this is very difficult to do, but we can strive through, through a, a constant process of becoming. So this is really about becoming aware of every choice. And I think this client dealt with this in a way of, um, of deciding that they were going to become what they called the captain of the ship. And so in every choice, well, not every choice, because we're constantly making choices, but in every obvious choice that they were making in their lives, they try to think of themselves as the captain of, of their own ship. So they get to steer the course, and that might be steering the course towards belonging more, because we need a certain amount of belonging. It's it's completely um, unrealistic to propose that we would ever be in a situation where we don't require social connection, where we don't require uh, to be a part of a group, to be a part of a tribe. These are important aspects of being human. They're important aspects of survival as well as fulfillment. But the question is how you do that and on whose terms and, and more importantly, whether or not it's a reflected upon choice or whether it's just a, a sort of automatic decision that we haven't considered. And so this is really about authenticity in existential terms, which um, authenticity has become kind of a buzzword, um, <coughs> particularly in the self-help field. And this idea that somehow there's a core authentic self that we have to uncover and then live nothing other than that self. But the existential perspective is that we will always have times when we are authentic and we will always have times when we are inauthentic. And that inauthenticity 
is just as much an important part of of human life as authenticity. So it's not about doing down in authenticity at all. It's about accepting it and understanding the role that it plays. So, for example, we in the example of this autistic client, to choose a life of constantly, deliberately not belonging would be, in some ways, quite an authentic choice, right? Choosing to be who he was, not compromising that for anything. But the stakes are very high. That's a a huge loss to do that. And so a certain amount of inauthenticity is completely normal. It's completely useful. It's, um, It's a given. But the question is, when do we, how often are we choosing? And how conscious are we? So it's not about uncovering this core self who is authentic all the time. It's about understanding yourself, knowing when you're being authentic, when you're being inauthentic, choosing that. So what would being a Superman mean to you? Or perhaps you'd like a different name for the same concept. How could you think of that version of yourself who claims their power, their creative power, their individual power and runs with it? And how can you get in touch with that side of yourself? What depth do you need to fall to in order to rise? Because often it's crisis that makes us reconsider these things. And it's difficulty that makes us consider these things. And existentialists are very um, careful about having this sort of um, unhelpfully positive outlook on things that actually the, the difficult bits are incredibly important, right? You can't have the light without the shadow. They feed into each other. You just can't have one without the other. And so it's not about falling into despair. It's about using crisis and difficulty and challenge in order to become, in order to become oneself. And actually, there's a lot about those difficult situations where we do end up questioning quite naturally some of the assumptions that we've been working with or some of the things that we've been running with that we haven't considered, which we now realize haven't worked for us. And we have to recreate ourselves slightly and recreate the way that we engage with the world. I'm aware of time <laughs> and I've still got loads left as usual, despite my worries. So I'm going to, um, I'm going to speed it up a little bit as I go through, but obviously we'll have the questions and answers. And I, I just want to make sure that we've got time for that. So next key concept is Amor Fati, which is the love of one's fate. So he says, my formula for greatness in a human being is Amor Fati, that one wants nothing to be different, not forward, not backward, not in all eternity. Not merely bear what is necessary, still less conceal it. All idealism is mendaciousness in the face of what is necessary, but love it. So basically, love your fate, love the challenge, love the difficulties. Don't wish for things to be any different. Run with it, experience it, live it. It's your story. It's your journey. And again, there's no sense that this isn't an incredibly difficult thing to do, but to do it is freeing. 
And so how do I work with this with clients? Well, there's a degree of succumbing and surrendering as an act of courage and an act of self-actualization. So stopping um, <clears throat> fighting oneself quite so much or fighting circumstances so much, but actually thinking how we can use them, how we can morph into something through them. What are they catalysts or how can we use them for self-actualization? So, um, quick case study. This is uh, the person who I like to call the secret hero. So this is somebody who um, really struggled actually in some ways with their emotions that uh, they felt a lot of the time like they were fighting their emotions, like um, fighting their sadness, fighting their despair. And that's such a huge burden. That's such a huge burden for any of us to carry. And the idea that we have to overcome our emotions by fighting them, that somehow we're not allowed the space to feel those is an incredibly destructive one. And again, something that I think we are told a lot by culture, by society that we have to do, that, that it's all in the positive emotions. Well, it's not. There's a space for negative emotions. In fact, those are a kind of an energy. And, a, and as we looked at, they can tell us really something about what we value and what we should be striving towards, what we should be upholding. They, they are a compass to us. And so this person really had to learn to, to succumb to emotions. And that's not a succumbing in the sense of so-called negative emotions being a sort of a tidal wave that then consume you and drown you. But that if you stop trying to run away from the wave, you can kind of surf on it. It might overwhelm you slightly, and it's scary and it's um gets the adrenaline pumping but you can ride on that wave you can use it as part of your creative process and when i say creative process i mean that creative process of becoming oneself embracing every part of yourself embracing those emotions that you feel and understanding why they're there what purpose they're serving um rather than feeling like they have to be overcome and actually this person ended up um thinking of themselves as, as a hero in everything in terms of, not in a sort of grandiose way, in a sort of a narrative way. So thinking about how um, difficulties and challenges were things to be overcome and a love of the opportunity to do so arose from that. So not a feeling that it's a, a, a chore or why is this happening to me, but this feeling of, okay, this is really awful and I'm really struggling with this but there's an opportunity in here to overcome and to become more myself. So I encourage everybody to think about the narrative of your life. What is the story that you're telling yourself about your journey? Um, because it's a hero's journey. And what is your story of overcoming? And we're all kind of constantly in that story until we pass away we're always in a, in a state of, of overcoming various things, of, um, of working with things, of, of facing the difficult parts in the narrative, because what is a narrative without challenge, without crisis, without difficulty? Well, it's not really, doesn't make for a very good story, does it? So it's just as well that we have all this challenge in our lives because that's how we can really create a great story. And so actually, when you get people to think about that, about how they are living that story, it can really free people up to um, respond differently to challenge 
that actually this is the part in the story where the hero really becomes themselves. So how do you, as the hero in the story, respond to this stimulus, respond to this hand that you've been dealt? That's the story that you create. That's when you really become yourself. So this is a thought experiment um, of Nietzsche's called The Eternal Recurrence, which kind of speaks for itself. So let me just read this to you. What if some day or night a demon were to steal after you into your loneliest loneliness and say to you, this life as you now live it and have lived it, you will have to live once more and innumerable times more, and there will be nothing new in it, but every pain and every joy and every thought and sigh and everything unutterably small or great in your life will have to return you all in, all in the same succession and sequence even this spider and this moonlight between the trees, and even this moment and I myself. The eternal hourglass of existence is turned upside down again and again, and you with it, speck of dust. Would you not throw yourself down and gnash your teeth and curse the demon who spoke thus? Or have you once experienced a tremendous moment when you would have answered him, you are a god, and I never have I heard anything more divine? If this thought gain possession of you. It would change you as you are, or perhaps crush you. The question in each and everything, do you desire this once more and innumerable times more, would lie upon your actions as the greatest weight? Or how well disposed would you have to become to yourself and to life to crave nothing more fervently than this ultimate eternal confirmation and seal? So basically, if you had to live your life over and over again, exactly as it was, every single detail that you see now, nothing changes. You still have all of the same emotional journey, the same pain, the same joy, the same circumstances. And you have to live it again and again and again and again for all eternity. How would you feel about that? And so his challenge really is about how do we become comfortable with that? How do we develop a love of our fate, a love of our life that is so deep that, that that idea doesn't bring us real discomfort? <laughs> and it's a difficult one. Most people, when they think about that, it is uncomfortable. It's not necessarily something that they would want to do and again and again and again and again. Um, but it's challenged to us to really think about our lives in a slightly different way. So what does this sound like to you? Is it pleasurable or is it tormenting? And is there anything that you could do to change it? And is it about choices that you make or is it about the way that you engage with the art of living? And of course, what Nietzsche is getting at is that it's not so much about choice, it's about engagement, although there's obviously an element of choice because we can now think about all of the choices that we haven't yet made in our lives and how those would be repeated again and again and again. So there's a, there's a challenge there about the future and the choices that we make, but there's also a challenge about how we engage with our lives more generally. Um, so a quick word on subjectivity. So this is a really important existential con concept. So there are no facts, only interpretations. We each come from a, a unique subjective position and we often read that into other people as well. So this big shock um, that I'm referring to here is about a student who in coaching practice um, 
had uh, a, a sort of mock client of theirs respond to a question by going, oh, my goodness, and rocking back and forth. And then in the feedback, they said something like, what, what were you thinking then? I felt really bad that I'd kind of thrown you into this emotional state and what was going on. And the person who had been the client didn't even remember it because to them, culturally, that was a perfectly normal way to react. It was quite an average way to react. And it didn't really um, it didn't really mean anything about the intensity of what they were feeling particularly. But we all make these, um, these assumptions based on our subjective experience, which is based on who we are as people, but also our history, our culture, all of these things that we inherit. We interpret everything through that lens. And so the world is only interpreted through these subjective lenses. There is no objective truth. So what informs your subjectivity? Think of all the threads that make up your tapestry of, ex of experience, your hopes, your memories, your culture, your influences, all of those things. And imagine how rich that tapestry is. And then realize that we are all carrying around completely different tapestries. There might be certain threads that are similar. Um, or certain patterns that are similar, but we all have all this such this this rich um, amount of experience and hope and um, and culture and influence that colors absolutely everything that we do, and we can't really know what somebody brings with them. Um, so. <sighs> gosh, I'm not going to get through this all. I really apologise. <laughs> there I was thinking that there was going to be too much time left. So uh, he spoke a bit about master-slave morality and how um, by default uh, moralities that we inherit tend to operate as either master moralities or slave moralities. And again, this is misinterpreted as him saying that um, we need masters and slaves, which obviously is a, um, a very uh, dangerous statement in and of itself but this is more uh, about how um, morality plays out in our lives so some moralities will be about assuming the slave role <coughs> that we're serving and some moralities will be about having the master role that it's about domination and so this is about questioning that um, it's also interesting, there's some research about guilt and shame and the role that those play in different cultures. And I think this is very much linked to this idea that Nietzsche was uh, putting forward, that uh, cultures either operate on a guilt or a shame basis. And if they operate on a guilt basis, then that generally shows that the morality, the morality is based on a slave morality, right? So you're, you're controlled by the, the guilt that you feel for not being able to live up to what the, the master demands or what the, so that could be a god or um, that could be a figure in society. And then the shame is the opposite. It's that you've done something wrong with your dominance that you're shamed for. Um, I won't talk about that case study because I don't have time. Um, but what do you see as your uh, as morally superior in your world? Is it better to be a master or is it better to be a slave? So we all lean towards one or the other based on the morality that we've grown up with. And how do you live that out in your world? And what would it be like to abandon this moral perspective? Um, to, to not have to always be the slave or not have to, have to always be the master. Um, and that is how we create our own morality and become the superman.
Um, there's a bit about this creditor-debtor relationship, which is really about how um, it's the role of charity and debt and how that doesn't actually tend to breed gratitude, but in fact make people feel vengeful and that it's not easily forgotten and it turns into a gnawing worm, as he puts it. Again, I'm going to skip through slightly. I'm really sorry. Um, so the challenge here for you is which relationships do you experience debt and credit in? How stable is the creditor? Must they become a punisher in order to um, to, uh, to to deal with this sense of being um, owed? Uh, and is there a gnawing worm somewhere in terms of the, the sort of exchanges that you have with people? And this is obviously not just in terms of money or possession. Um, it's about so much more than that. Right, I'm going to whiz through some things really quickly. Um, gosh, resentment. Oh, I'll just read you the quote. Whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process he does not become a monster. When you look, look long into the abyss, the abyss also looks into you. So the danger of becoming the monsters that one is fighting. So which monsters are you fighting in your life? What's your what's your epic battle story and what are your sort of day-to-day -day battlings? And can you see in your narrative an element of you becoming the monster in, in that battle? How to find yourself. No one can construct for you the bridge upon which precisely you must cross the stream of life. No one but yourself alone. Now, another great um, uh, quote of his is about how we each have, we're each in a cage and we assume that somebody else's key will unlock our cage. But in fact, we know it doesn't work like that. You have to have your own key to unlock your cage. And so, again, it's this, this um, sense of individualism and, uh, and not relying on anybody else to rescue us or not assuming that um, what works for them will work for us. Uh, and again, this is one of the dangers, I think, when we look into self-actualization, when we look into the self-help industry, that there's this desire for somebody to present us with a sort of magic elixir, but actually we have to find our own key to unlock whatever it is that's holding us back. Um, and he spoke a little bit about free spirits as well. Um, so perhaps a bit more obviously positive. Um, <laughs> he is called a free spirit who thinks differently from what on the basis of his origin, environment, his class and profession, or on the basis of the dominant uh, views of the age would have been expected of him. So again, this notion of being able to, um, to cast aside all that we inherit, all that we, um, that we sort of absorb, and really create ourselves, really diverge from that and, and come up with our own sense of morality. And that that's true freedom to be able to do that. So thinking about what roles you play, what you inherited, um, and how do you imagine that you might think or believe differently from, um, from all of those things that you inherited. So just a quick summary uh, of the key points. So this is the notion that finding ourselves is not at all a given. In fact, it's a struggle. It's an art and a struggle of becoming oneself and that you have to really be a questioner and an explorer and you have to have a great deal of courage in order to do that. You have to learn to identify what you inherit versus what you um, intrinsically believe. 
to become oneself is not just for the it, it's it's not for the faint of heart and nobody can tell you what it is you have to find your own key to your cage we're in creation always whether we reflect on it or not so the question is do you want to reflect on your creation and have a say in what you what you are becoming or do we just take it on um, and, and go with the flow and we have to boldly stand alone and that's a very difficult and risky thing to do. So I encourage you all to think about what is missing from this philosophy as well, because um, we should always be critical of thought and we should always be looking for our own key uh, rather than just taking it um, at face value. And also, it's what Nietzsche would have wanted. His entire philosophy is about questioning and um, not just taking things on board without thinking about it. So definitely question the heck out of him. Um, and then really it's up to you what you take from this. What do you make of it? We all interpret things differently. We all, um, you know, philosophy is a kind of art and it's up to us to interpret it in the way that we see fit and the way that has most meaning to us. And so that's what I'd like to encourage you all to do. And I'm going to stop there because I have gone over time. But thank you very, very much. Feedback from the chat is... You can see there, people are just overwhelmed with how good that was. So excellent, well done. Um, we've got a few questions here for um, from some of the attendees. We've got about ten minutes. We'll run through them, all right? So the first one is from Giuseppe, and Giuseppe asks: Sometimes you hear that you can be anything you want to be. As a coach, do you encourage people to do whatever they want they want to do, or do you find there is something of a natural and genetic element or a cultural background that actually limits your horizons? Is who you are something you can change in any way or is it defined and just for you to discover? Gosh, those are some really, really good questions and really important questions as well. I think a lot of the time people think they know what they want and actually they don't. So I think, we, first of all, we make a lot of assumptions about what we want, which we have to question constantly. So a lot of the time when people come to coaching, especially if they don't know anything about Um, they'll come and say I've got this goal and I just want to achieve this and it's this kind of small mind thing but also with this this sense that they have that once they accomplish this one thing suddenly everything will fall into place and they will have become themselves and it will all be sorted their life's work will be done and of course it doesn't work like that at all there's, there's no point at which we are um, an unmoving being an un an uncreative being it is a constant process of becoming oneself and that's hard it's hard work really hard work and so I think we have to be very very careful of um thinking that we ever know what we're what what we really want or um what is going to make a big difference to us or anything that kind of attempts to pin things down and make things more simple because life is just more complex than that and, and you're right. I think there is a tendency um, at the moment, particularly because we live in a very individualistic culture, to think that um, it's all about self-actualizing, that we can be or do anything that we want to be. And those are a lot of the messages that we're given. And actually, I would question those a lot. <clears throat> and I would question the purpose of those a lot. And I think that if you take that on board too much, you're just going to have a constant sense of failing, really. Um, because we can't do it all. We can't have it all. It's not, it doesn't, 
work like that. Life is far more complex than that. And there are, of course, certain genetic factors to these things as well um, that predispose us in certain ways. Although there are some really good examples of people going far beyond what they would expect from certain genetic features as well. So people who, I mean, you only have to look at the Paralympics, don't you? Um, to look at people really flouting those expectations or those understandings of their capacity. Um, but I think it's about being, I think it's about understanding that the goal shouldn't be to have it all or to even have one particular thing that we think is going to solve all our problems, that it's a much more sort of artistic, creative experience of living that is constantly evolving and that is not about meritocracy or attainment. I mean, these are some of my personal <laughs> views as well. <laughs> I don't know if that answers the question. No, that's a good answer. Quite a few questions in there and um, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't exactly an easy question to get started with, but we'll move on to the next one here. Um, it's from Michelle. I think this is a great question, actually. She says, how would you work with someone constantly creating challenge to feel their narrative is more interesting? <laughs> oh, I know a lot of people who do this. I know a lot of people to do this who do this. And I think it's fine to do that as long as you're owning that that's what you're doing. So I, a lot of the work really is just getting people to really reflect on what they're doing and why they're doing it. And that's not necessarily with the end goal of change. A lot of the time, once we reflect on what we're doing and why we're doing it, we will naturally create change because we're not happy with it in some way. We're not satisfied with it in some way. But it's not a given. Sometimes it just allows you to take more ownership of something. So we, you know, who are we to say that somebody creating challenge in, in order to feed into this narrative is a bad thing. It's not necessarily. We can't um, dictate the way that somebody else should live. Now, of course, if they're drawing somebody else into that all the time and it's creating problems for other people, then that's a slightly different question. Mm. But there's nothing to say that there's anything wrong with living that way unless that person is doing it in a sort of pre-reflective way where they haven't thought about it and they haven't made a choice to do that. And I think that's the crux of the matter. It's about being able to reflect enough that we're aware of at least some percentage of the choices that we're making and why we're making them and whether or not they serve us. 100%. Um, the next question is from Joel, Joel Levy. And Joel has asked, how, do, how does Nietzsche balance individual and society? Do we have to be inauthentic to reap the benefits of society? Yeah, I think we do to an extent. And a, a lot of... Um, there's some interesting considerations around this as well in terms of how, to a degree, you need the herd in order even to express your individualism. So a lot of the time, the way that people will express individualism is from the springboard of a herd of some sort, because you do something, you, you vary something, um, you make some small change that makes you stand out from that herd, but it's a kind of a, um, a variation on a theme rather than a completely new um, sense of self or a completely original concept of oneself. So you see it in fashion all the time, of course, like the latest fashion will be um, something that is some 
slight variance. So you're kind of claiming both. You're kind of claiming being a part of the herd, but you're expressing your power in some way by saying, oh, but I'm going to do this slightly different thing and then you're all going to follow me. <laughs> so I think these things feed into each other and the idea that we can ever separate any of these um, dualities or paradoxes out is really um, not only dangerous, but I think um, futile. The, all of these paradoxes and tensions, they all work together. They're all part of an ecosystem. Um, and so the idea that we could ever be completely individual without herd is, um, is, is dangerous and not necessarily fulfilling in any way or anything really to strive for. It's about understanding how they work together, really, and um, and again making choices within that. So, how much of an individual do I want to be in this situation, and is it safe for me to be an individual in this situation? Because often it isn't even safe. We we need that. We need that security. We need people behind us. We need people. We need to be among people. We need to. Um, we need to share things. You know. The idea of just shunning that entirely is, I think, completely unhelpful. Definitely, definitely. Um, so we've got a question here from Ramona. What would you recommend to read in terms of finding yourself and what is it different in how Nietzsche thought about this compared to others? Oh, gosh, there's so many things on, on finding yourself. I mean, I will always come from an existential perspective because that's my bias. Um there are lots of key philosophers that you could look at. So I think in terms of Nietzsche, Thus Spake Zarathustra is a good place to start because it's quite a, an easy read and quite funny in places. Um, <clears throat> and it is very much about finding oneself and about that conflict between individualism and the herd and, and what it's like to be a hermit versus what it's like to re-engage with society. Um, but in terms of other books, I would really recommend something like um, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which is a really great um, existential work from a Holocaust survivor um, about how he survived the experience of being in a concentration camp and the, and the role that meaning uh, plays in that um, and how one finds the wherewithal to cope with those kinds of situations. It's a very um, empowering book by somebody who has really walked the walk. And I think that's something to be wary of when, when we, when we listen to thinkers about stuff, when we read books, when we engage with self-help works about becoming oneself or creating oneself or anything really that's designed to, to help us in our lives. <sighs> look for people who have actually been through a struggle or look for people who have actually really had to overcome something look for people who have walked the walk and are not just talking the talk or trying to sell products or um, find those people and you'll find wisdom. Cool. Cool. Um, we've probably got time for one more. Um, we'll we've got a question from Kelly. Um, with your herd, does it highlight the need to reflect and check in that you are staying in alignment with your own values and morals instead of uh, molding to fit in. Yeah, I think that's right. Or at least being conscious of when you're molding to fit in and, and, and doing that as a, as a conscious choice because uh, for whatever reason, so because it's safer or because 
you just really need that support from your community at that moment or um or because you really genuinely don't want to be antagonistic in some way it's really is just about reflecting on it and and making these informed choices these actually so that your choices are living your truth whether that feels like you're being authentic or whether it feels like you're being inauthentic actually the authenticity comes from being aware of your cho- the choices that you're making reflecting on the choices you're making and making deliberate choices about stuff definitely definitely okay well sasha that's all we've got time for it's been brilliant thank you so much um we'll be in touch soon i guess everyone else will be back at one o'clock for the next talk on the science of intention from juliet adams so um i'm sure if we were live you'd be getting me a round of applause here but um (laughs) (laughs) yeah thanks and we'll speak soon all right thank you so much thank you everybody for coming and yeah enjoy becoming yourselves